Hi there. My name is Mireya Perez, and I aspire to create a platform where language service providers can tell their stories and where listeners can find inspiration and creativity. This podcast is dedicated to you, the language professional that desires to listen to the journeys of others in order to create their own path and personal branding. Here, I'll feature an array of guests from all fields of interpretation, as well as translation, willing to share their stories with you. Join me as we embark on professional and personal development by telling our stories. This is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. back to episode number 10 of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. We're in the double digits. I'm super excited uh, and I'm excited to be here with you all today. It feels like forever, but let me tell you that I have definitely been working hard behind the scenes in putting great material for you guys together. There is so much more in store and I really do appreciate that you keep coming back and tuning in. I appreciate those of you that take time out of your day to send some shout outs out to me on social media to connect with me or to just let me know that you are enjoying the show and that you're spreading the word regarding the podcast. It means the world to me. So thank you so much for doing that. I'm also excited for today's guest. So let's get to it. Loi Foyerla is a certified German to English translator specializing in legal, commercial and public relations. For more than a decade, much of her work was legal and technical translations for BASF. She also translates arts-related materials ranging from exhibition catalogs to, get this, Nazi-looted art subject, to compensation claims. She has also translated more than half a dozen books and multiple episodes of Sesame Street. Loie was certified by the American Translators Association in 1991 and has maintained her certification in full force and effect without interruption since that date. She also passed the U.S. government German to English examination offered by the Joint Publications Research Service and is an approved translator for the IMF. She taught legal translation in the Translation Certificate Program at the University of Chicago and the Introduction to Translation course in New York University's Translation Certificate Program. She was formerly the coordinator of court interpreting services for the state of New York and subsequently held the same position with the state of Oregon. She holds a PhD in German and Applied Linguistics from the University of Kansas and a JD from the New York University School of Law. After law school, she clerked at the New Jersey Supreme. Dr. Feuerla has significant experience living, studying, and working in German-speaking countries. She spent three years studying Germanistic at Christian Albrecht's University in Kiel, Germany, one semester studying art history in Vienna, and participating in the goldsmithing seminar founded by the artist Oskar Koskoschka in Salzburg, where one of her projects was awarded the purchase prize by the city of Salzburg. She is the chair of the ATA Honors and Awards Committee and, for the past eight years, has organized the ATA's table in the Wright Center at the Guadalajara International Book Fair. So, without further ado, here's 
Loi Foyerless Story. Loi, thank you so much for being with us today. I want to take the opportunity just to say thank you for saying yes to my invitation to being a part of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. And I'd like to begin by asking you to share with us uh, your story. I never realized I had a story, but I'm happy to tell my almost story. I was born in Brooklyn, New York. Um, when I was very young, my parents moved out to New Jersey. We spent most of my early childhood going back to Brooklyn to visit my grandparents and my aunts and uncles. I was the first person in my uh, family to go to college. My mother was focused not on how good the college would be, but whether it was a sleepaway college. <laughs> uh, that meant a lot to her, that it was a sleepaway college as a result of this rather strange fixation, I ended up going to a college, well, passing up wonderful colleges that were very nearby and going to a an okay college some other place. I was a German major. And that was mainly because when I was very young, some relative came and because they didn't speak English, uh, they sat and talked to a child without a, a common language. They taught me to count to 10 in German, and that set the course of my life. So interesting. And you decided with that eventually that you would follow the language field. So you, you made your in German? Yeah, I, I majored in German. I actually had a double major, uh, German and English. Uh, with a minor in education because I thought that I would probably you know, be teaching. And because uh, very few people relatively uh, were German majors at the college I went to, uh, my German professor took a great interest in me and he started uh, asking, uh, well, why don't you go to graduate school? That would be really wonderful. You know, you really should go to graduate school. And because I was raised to be a very um, docile child uh, who was raised to want to please people, uh, I didn't want to disappoint this poor man. And so I... <laughs> applied to graduate school. <laughs> was this university in the States? Yes, yes, it was in the States. And it wasn't a, uh, you know, it was a very small department. If I had been uh, an English major rather than a double major, no one in the English department would have paid any attention to me and what I was going to do next. Um, so this sets the course, right? Yes. I think there couldn't have been more than maybe half a dozen. I, I mean, I really don't know. Uh, there were very few German majors. Uh, there were very few people in my German classes. And so it's really just that <laughs> I guess he wanted to encourage people to do things and there weren't many to encourage. And I was uh, easily influenced. And so because he kept nagging at me. <laughs> I applied to graduate school, whatever graduate schools he recommended, I applied to. And I basically got into all of them and picked the one that had the biggest scholarship and off I went. And off you go on your journey to um, major in, in the German language. What happens 
after you're done, what do you decide to do? Or did something happen during your university journey that made you look into using your newly acquired language? Well, it, it was my plan to become a German professor at a university and be just like the people who were teaching me when I was in graduate school. Uh, unfortunately, when I got out of graduate school, there really were no jobs. And in the meantime, I also went and spent uh, several years at a German university. Uh, I spent two years at a German university, uh, met a German person, and uh, we married. And then we returned to the United States and finished graduate school. And originally, our plan was we would move to a large city where there were lots of colleges and universities, and we would both be Dr. Feuerle and Dr. Feuerle and live happily ever after. But uh, just like with COVID-19, uh, plans don't always go according to what you envision they will be. And so we had to dream up something different to do. Anyway, the long and the short of it was ended up living in uh, West Virginia. My husband taught at the university there. They had uh, strange nepotism rules. So I could not have a position at that university. I could only be an adjunct uh, for a pittance. And so uh, he decided to go to law school. In fact, we decided that we would both go to law school. He would go first and I would go second. We then um, moved to New Haven, Connecticut for his law school. And when he got out, um, he was quite focused on his own career. We didn't take step two of the plan. And while I was in graduate school, I discovered that translation was really lots of fun. While I was in graduate school, somebody, <clears throat> some other professor got a grant to study ants. Uh, that's the little insects that crawl around on your picnic tablecloth. <laughs> anyway, these he had he dug up dozens of articles on ants and ant plants. Uh, apparently, there was a Jesuit uh, missionary in the early 20th century who went to Africa to save souls, and in between saving souls, he studied the ants that lived nearby. <laughs> And it was quite interesting. These uh, ants lived on specific plants that were covered with some gooey, sticky, sweet stuff. And the ants would lick this away and in the process remove certain other noxious insects that were bad for the plants. So the ants and the ant plants were living happily in harmony. You know, I had to do a certain amount of research for this. And I thought, well, this is really fun. But I did not think of it as a career. When I ultimately, uh, after my husband and I separated and I started law school, I ended up translating German and Swiss pension statutes to make money to pay for law school. Uh, once again, this was very amusing and I enjoyed it. <laughs> and one day the woman said to me, the client, she said, you know, she said, German must be a very easy language. And uh, I was a bit puzzled by this because uh, most people don't think German is an easy language. Right. <laughs> Myself included. <laughs> and I said, why do you say that? And she said, well, you know, she said, 
your translations read so much better than the ones we get from Spanish. <laughs> and uh, being a little bit of a smart ass, <laughs> I said, uh, what makes you think that maybe I'm not a better translator than the one you have for Spanish? <laughs> she mumbled something at me and never sent another job to me. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was interesting. But Maybe she didn't. was the translator. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she did the Spanish ones. I don't know. <laughs> it was for a registered um, uh, pension advisor, actually. I mean, she worked for a little company. Uh, maybe it was her company. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it was her mother who did the Spanish translations. I really have no idea. But <laughs> I thought, hmm, <laughs> apparently that was a very ill-advised response. <laughs> it sounds like almost at first, you know, you were using it as a side hustle to get you through school. And then it was still uh, just interesting and like a hobby when does it turn into a career? It's hard to put your finger on that. Uh, you know, for a number of years, I thought, well, maybe if I was just an adjunct at some university, uh, and then, you know, I'd kind of have my foot in the door, and they'd see I got good evaluations uh, from the students, and then when they finally did have an opening, they would hire me. Uh, that seemed reasonable to me for a certain period of time, perhaps an absurdly long, optimistic time. You know, I really can't put my finger on it. Um, while I was practicing law, I liked law school. Law school was really, really interesting. But practicing law was a bit different. Basically, I have to say, I think there was a certain prejudice against women at the time uh, I started, finished law school and uh, started practicing law. You know, I would be perhaps at a Xerox machine, Xeroxing something for myself. And certain people would uh, anticipate that I would be happy to do their Xeroxing too. <laughs> Oh. And uh, that was less than charming. The The hours I had to keep were really quite uh, brutal. And by then, I was a single parent with two children, two small children. And if you have a wife uh, and somebody gives you a job at 5.15, it's going to take four or five hours. Uh, you call home and you say, Honey, I'm going to be late for dinner. Keep it warm for me. In my case, I had to call a teenage babysitter and <laughs> uh, tell her that uh, she wasn't going to get off at six like she thought, uh, that it would be much later. And I wasn't really able to say how much later. And her parents didn't like that either. <laughs> and so it became clear that without a wife, it was going to be a lot more difficult uh, than it would be for my male uh, counterparts. And then um, <laughs> the miracle occurred. My younger daughter developed a condition uh, that could lead to permanent kidney damage. And you know, I would call from work and I'd say, well, you know, take your pills, uh, sweetheart. You know, um, mommy wants you to take your pills. And while she felt terrible, she would take them. But as soon as she started feeling better, she wouldn't take them. And so I would rant and rage, and I would call her five or six times uh, in the afternoon to make sure she took the pills. And she'd say, sure, sure. And, you know, she'd hang up and 
I don't know, the cat would walk in front of her and she'd you know, start playing with the cat and she, then she would forget her pills. And when I came home and counted the pills, I could tell that she hadn't taken her pills. Uh, mm. And then one day when I was putting away uh, some wash, I found a hoard of pills. Uh, you know, unless you uh, are able to hire Mary Poppins, uh, you're left with, you know, very sweet and nice teenage babysitters, but they will, you know, take the path of resistance. And so on the basis of a $5,000 contract to translate a book, I quit my job at the oldest, largest, stuffiest law firm in the state I was living in, uh, which will remain nameless, <laughs> and leaped into the void and uh, have been translating or interpreting or doing something related to translating and interpreting ever since. Walk us through the day in the shoes of Loi Foyerla. Well, every day is different, and uh, I like that a lot. I think there's no typical day. I've had some very, very interesting documents to translate over the years, ranging from historic documents uh, such as an edict signed by Frederick the Great, uh, (laughs) granting the Jews of the city of Glogau permission to remain in Glogau and ply their trade. It was a uh, Xerox of this document with his, or perhaps his secretary's signature at the bottom. And that was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, Another very, very interesting document I translated was a huge piece of paper that was a marriage uh, certificate from around 1840 uh, from someplace in the middle of Germany. And one of the things that struck me about it was everybody's name, first and last, were capitalized, except for the groom. The groom's last name was written in lowercase letters. He didn't have the initial capital, which seemed rather strange since the bride, her family, the witnesses, everybody's name had uh, capitalized first name, capitalized last name. And uh, maybe because I do have a sort of research bent, uh, I just wouldn't let go of it. And after hours and hours and hours, uh, I discovered that apparently if you were not born within a marriage uh, back in that time and place to mark you for life, they spelled your last name with a small letter, which seemed to me incredibly cruel given the mores of the time. Wow. Now that's a story for you. And I, and I also learned that uh, after World War II, if you happened to have a baby and you weren't married, that uh, a very good chance that uh, your child would be taken away from you since you had proved that you really didn't have the planning ability to take good care of a child. And so the child was given to the, uh, I don't know, the equivalent of the deficient of uh, youth services and maybe put up for adoption. So there was always very interesting uh, historical and cultural and social things to learn as a translator. Absolutely. And especially with when you have all that background and you do your own research to try to find out. And I think it sounds like you just had, you know, a keen eye for extracting that information, right? Maybe uh, someone might have said, you know, it's just a typo or, you know, they forgot to 
to do the the uppercase in this name but for you 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 did a little bit of research and there was actually something to that and i find that so fascinating yeah and and that's one thing that really very is very interesting about translating and interpreting every day is truly different i've done an awful lot of translations relating to Nazi looted art partially because because I did go to law school I ended up doing a lot of legal translation and the fate of Nazi looted art often depends upon a lawsuit so it means that the uh, legal clients I had didn't just do contracts and tax cases they also had a number of compensation claims uh, particularly after the wall came down. And that was very interesting. I don't know if you recall or whether people who are not involved in things German uh, were aware of this. In 2012, uh, the German authorities discovered a little old man carrying a suspiciously large amount of cash uh, across the German-Swiss border. And it was more than you are permitted to take, and that aroused their suspicion, particularly when he appeared to be extremely nervous. They pursued it further, and then they discovered that he was living in an apartment with about 1,500 pieces of art uh, that he had apparently inherited from his father, who was an art, one of the four art dealers who bought, sold, and I suppose confiscated art uh, on behalf of Hitler. And after the war, the father claimed he didn't have any of the art, that it had all been burned in the firebombing of Dresden towards the end of the war. And uh, people basically left him in peace. But apparently, he did have the art, and he lied about it. And he had left it with his son and uh, wife. I think there was a daughter too, but the son got the responsibility. Um, the son was really only about 14 or 15 at the end of the war, but he assumed this task, duty, and burden of uh, caring for this art secretly. In fact, his father truly ruined his life because because he had this secret, he couldn't have uh, friends he couldn't have uh, people to his apartment because basically it was like someone's storage facility. And he lived pretty much under the radar for decades until they discovered that he had this treasure trove of art. That's an amazing story. Yes. And uh, so I, I got a lot of work that related uh, to this treasure trove of art. Not, not from the German government and not from uh, the U.S. government, but from uh, people who might have had an interest in the art at one time or, or probably their, I don't know, grandparents, great-grandparents or people who hoped to be able to be connected with this art and living, live happily ever after with their genuine Picasso in their living room. Yeah. Um, in any case, at just about this time, the movie called Monuments Men came out, kind of an interesting movie that was very, very well-timed. 
and things were actually quite fascinating. I mean, I translated things like the receipt that the U.S. armed forces gave people when they took art back from them to study whether they had been, you know, looted or stolen. And then if they uh, satisfied themselves, it wasn't. They gave this art back to the person who claimed it. They weren't always accurate uh, in every case. But for each piece of art that was studied like that, there was a receipt that you got when you had to give it to the U.S. monuments men. You know, so there's lots and lots of cultural and historical things that you learn translating. Uh, It's true. There's a lot of things that are kind of garden variety translations you know, a marriage certificate, uh, information for uh, U.S. immigration services, um, a death certificate so that you can inherit a small amount of money that your Tante Inga uh, back in Germany left for you. But there are lots of things that are are truly very, very interesting. Yes, definitely. Um, Loie, now take us to, at one point in your life, you become a part of the uh, Feria Internacional del Libro de Guadalajara. Yes. So from German translations to La Feria Internacional del Libro de Guadalajara, which is the Guadalajara International Book Fair, or La FIL for its acronym, share with our listeners what this is and what is your participation in it? Well, it is the second largest uh, book fair in the world. Uh, The Frankfurt Book Fair in Germany is the largest book fair, Um, but it is certainly the most important book fair in the Spanish-speaking world, although I'm sure the people who are involved with the Buenos Aires Fair uh, might uh, take issue with that. (laughs) (laughs) But but volume-wise, it is absolutely huge. And um, it is a bit different uh, than the Frankfurt Fair in in any number of ways. Uh, The Frankfurt Fair, I've I've been to the Frankfurt Fair, I think, two or three times. Um, And the Frankfurt Fair seems largely focused on uh, book professionals. Uh, The Guadalajara Fair um, seems to be much more for the entire population. We've got troops in uh, high school classes uh, uh, go trooping through the Guadalajara fair. Um, There's a huge uh, section of the fair for what, Los Niños. Um, You know, there's a huge uh, children's book aspect to it. In any event, I started going to the fair on my own. I found it interesting, and the Guadalajara Fair is interesting for another reason. It was organized by the uh, University of Guadalajara, and it has a little bit more of an academic focus in that translators are woven into the activities at the fair. The fair allows the um, Mexican Translators Association to hold its annual conference at the fair, uh, which gathers professional translators there. In addition to all of the events that the Mexican Translators Association organizes in the two days that they are invited by the Guadalajara Fair to do their thing, the Guadalajara Fair has other 
events for publishers and book professionals that relate to translation. So translation is really very beautifully interwoven into the fair. I won't say that translators are dominant because it's a huge, huge event, but translators are an integral part of the Guadalajara Fair. I went to it on my own um, a time or two and found it very interesting. But the one thing they didn't do, if you weren't a member of the Mexican uh, Translators Association, uh, they didn't do anything to bring the random translators who weren't part of OMT uh, together. And so I wrote to them and said that I thought it was wonderful they had the fair, but wouldn't it be nice if they had a place where freelance translators could perhaps get together with each other? And uh, somebody wrote back to me and thanked me for my suggestion. And when I went back the next year, they had a table in the business center that had a big sign on it that said traductores. Uh, <laughs> and I met some of the people who, like myself, were interested in literary translation and had, up until that time, apparently wandered about on their own with no way of identifying other translators. Um, and I met some really, really nice people that way. Anyway, we did that for, they did that for a year or two, but then they stopped having that table. And I was elected to the board of the American Translators Association. And I suggested to the ATA that maybe it would be nice uh, if the ATA had a presence at the Guadalajara Book Fair. And the long and the short of it was, uh, if someone was willing to do the work, yes, they were interested. And so I stepped up and did the work. <laughs> and we've had a presence at the Guadalajara Book Fair for eight years now. Um, I'm not sure what will happen this year because with the virus, I mean, it was always quite a mob scene there. And, you know, people very, very uh, close, cheek by jowl, uh, particularly on the open days. I mean, the easy days are the days for professionals, although it certainly is rather crowded then. But it really is a mob scene on the days that are not reserved for professionals. So I am wondering how that will play out in the future. I'm certainly willing to do the organization again to make the event happen. But I don't know whether, I mean, at this point, nobody knows how COVID-19 is going to play out in the coming months. Right. When is the event typically held in? Well, the event is typically held for uh, people from the United States. It turns out to be, uh, it begins that Thanksgiving weekend, which mm -hmm. makes it less appealing for people with close family ties. I always leave the day after Thanksgiving and go to Guadalajara. Uh, the fair begins on that Saturday. On that Saturday. So Thanksgiving is Thursday. I leave on Friday. And then uh, the fair opens on Saturday. Loi, bring us now to present day. You are now the president of the Oregon Society of Translators and Interpreters. Is this correct? Yes, president and a founding member. Talk to us a little bit about your participation with the Oregon Society of Translators and Interpreters. Uh, I think the organization got its start when people realized that the rate that was being paid to court interpreters had remained 
the same from 1995 until 2012 or 2013. You know, what was an excellent rate in 1995 uh, was not an excellent rate in 2012. 2013. A number of us got together. We went to the state capitol uh, to lobby the state legislators. We made public statements at public hearings. We submitted written comments on proposed legislation, and uh, we were successful. And we were so happy with our success. (laughs) Absolutely. Together, we decided that we would create an organization that would allow us to do the same thing for medical interpreters, for translators, or whatever language professional uh, might need support and people willing to put pressure where it was needed. Currently, uh, well, back in uh, 2014, they raised the hourly rate for court interpreters from $35 an hour to I think forty two fifty, and since then there is a sort of uh, cost of living increase every uh, couple of years. So we really did feel like we had achieved something quite wonderful. Uh, medical interpreters do have a very difficult road to hoe. Without an organization to step up for you, people are perhaps not even aware of how poor the, the rate was. Yes, now that's something probably uh, we can't talk about is rates. You know, the ATA does have a rule that you're not supposed to talk about rates, but I think probably okay to have mentioned uh, what court interpreters get because that is a matter of public record. Uh, and that is all now in the past and seems to be moving forward. Uh, in any case, um, OSTI, which is the Oregon Society of Translators and Interpreters, has continued being involved in advocacy issues. Uh, there's the interpreters who uh, work for public defense, at least that's what it's called in Oregon, uh, you know, the Office of Public Defense. And if you're interpreting for public defense lawyers, you get paid by the state, but their rate had not kept up with what court interpreters were sent. Were given. So we have been involved in uh, advocacy for people working for public defense. And currently in Oregon, there's an organization which focuses uh, solely on medical interpreters. And we hope that we work collegially with each other. Um, uh, there is a uh, much harder nosed organization that is involved in a union building effort here in Oregon. We do, uh, OSSI does lend its support, uh, but it is a little bit, uh, its hands are tied because it is a, well, we had hoped to be a 501c3 uh, where you're not allowed to do heavy duty um, advocacy, but there's an organization called uh, Oregon Interpreters in Action, and they are the driving force behind the union uh, at this point. We Got have had uh, a, an annual conference every year. We were, uh, OSTI officially became a domestic nonprofit in Oregon in January of 2014 after our heady success. Uh, and we have had an annual conference every year starting in 2014. 
which when you think of it is probably rather bold that an organization six months old started planning to have a conference, uh, even though Oregon is uh, relatively small uh, population-wise compared to other states, our last three conferences have drawn more than 100 people to our conference, more, and that's more people than we actually have as members in Osti. <laughs> that so, is so great. But once again, with COVID-19, uh, we are agonizing. The board is currently agonizing. You know, do we dare have an in-person event? Uh, should it be uh, remote? Will people want to come to a remote event? Uh, do you want a remote event that lasts all day so you can sit in front of your computer for seven hours? Or do we want to have continuing education events three weekends in a row and have one morning, one afternoon? I mean, how we are, will actually structure it is indeed an open question. Uh, another question is, will people actually want to give presentations? Uh, this week, we are going to be sending out the call for papers. And I suppose if we get a very poor response to that, because people are so unsettled uh, by all of the changes due to the virus, that will determine whether and how we have a conference. Uh, last year, we had escalated to having three strands. So every hour, uh, you had three things to choose from, uh, which meant that we could have something for translators, we could have some for court interpreters, we could have something for medical interpreters, uh, which, of course, is highly appealing. Right. So, when when does the event typically take place, Loie? Uh, the the OSTE event typically takes place in mid-September. Mm, Mid-September. What bit of advice would you have for someone that's either just entering the field or perhaps someone that is currently in the field but is looking to do something more? Starting out I think it is very, very useful to be a member of a professional organization. The knowledge that you can uh, gain from your more experienced colleagues is invaluable. Uh, the networking that you're able to do there uh, is uh, beyond valuable. Uh, when I went to my first ATA conference, um, probably I wouldn't have gone at all, except as I was planning and plotting my escape from the law firm, I started taking translation courses at NYU, New York University. One of my teachers there, A, hired me the minute I finished her class, and B, she encouraged me to come to the, or go to the ATA, the ATA conference. Uh, everybody will always tell you uh, that diversification is important, whether it is your financial advisor telling you that your asset mix <laughs> should be diversified. Uh, so um, people at the ATA will tell you you don't want to do all your work with one client because it can, for no fault of yours, uh, change rapidly. And often the people who send a translation, they might leave. Yes. Right. Well, Loie, 
it sounds like you have done extraordinary work with the field of translation and just what you've contributed to the language profession. And I want to thank you on behalf of all language professionals for the work that you've done um, with the Oregon Society of Translators and Interpreters and the work that you continue to do. I want to take the opportunity to thank you for being a part of this podcast and for making some time so that you can talk to our listeners and sharing your story. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, for uh, drawing my story out. (laughs) (laughs) Where can we find out more about the work that you do? I'm not a good self-promoter. My LinkedIn profile is hopelessly out of date. I keep thinking that I'll update it, uh, but I haven't really done that yet. My Facebook page, I don't use for uh, anything professional. But the Oregon Society of Translators and Interpreters is updating its web presence at the moment. Um, Probably within a month, we should have migrated our platform So I would say that by June, we should uh, have a decent presence uh, for Asti. If anyone is interested in literary translation, I am the chair of the Honors and Awards Committee, and we will be looking for readers uh, for this year's Literary Translation Prize for the ATA. We are awarding the Galantir Prize this year. The Galantir Award is for translators of any language in the world except German into English. Now, it's not that we're prejudiced against Germans. (laughs) It's, It's that another prize had been given that was specifically for German and only for German. And it didn't seem fair that Germans should have two cracks at a literary translation prize. So the uh, second literary translation prize is for everything except German. And we will be looking for readers in languages as diverse as Serbian, Slovenian, and Farsi this year. Every year, the submissions that we get from publishers tend to be a little bit different than the languages that were in demand the year previously. Obviously, uh, French and Spanish and Portuguese are heavily represented in this year, but we will be looking for people working in other languages. And if anyone is interested in being a reader for this year's prize, they should get in touch with Karen, that's C-A-R-O-N, at A-T-A dot net. You know, she is our liaison at uh, the ATA for the Literary Translation Prizes. I'll make sure to include the information also on the episode notes for anyone that would like to come back and follow up with that information. I'll make sure to include the links to the organizations as well as to the email address that you just shared with us, Loie. Get in touch with me too if they'd like to ask questions about what is entailed in being a reader. Yes, absolutely. Well, once again, thank you so very much, Loie, for having taken the time to join us today. Um, And I hope that you continue to stay safe and that uh, we'll be in touch soon. Yeah. And I wish you the same. And I look forward to your skillful editing to make me sound even better than I did. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much, Loie. You take good care of yourself. Okay, and I will see you on the educational uh, interpreting list. Definitely. I am there.
Yes, I saw you. <laughs> okay, <laughs> bye-bye. Bye. It was lovely to have heard from Loie Foyerla's story. As usual, I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to connect with me on social media. If you haven't polished up your LinkedIn profile, maybe it's time to connect with me there. You'll find me as Mireya Perez, Mireya Perez. Use the hashtag BrandTheInterpreter when you'd like to brand your story for the day. I can find that story on either LinkedIn, Instagram, or Facebook. Remember that for season two, I'd like to share your stories, good or bad, new or old, yours or not. Check out my webpage on BrandTheInterpreter.com for further details. Be well, till next time, and hey, tell your story. Brand the Interpreter. Have a great week. Till next time, guys. Bye-bye.